Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Riding the platform down to Discourse Hell, or should I go to graduate school? <laughs> um, isn't isn't that what communism truly represents? The movement that abolishes the current state of vibes and institutes a utopian positive vibe society that transcends money, class, and all the bigotries of capitalism. To, to become a class which has a vibe unto itself, I think, is, is the ideal here. I think that's in angles somewhere, isn't it? Um, <laughs> whatever you do, don't don't cut this because I've been recording all this time. Oh, perfect. Well, we have to. This is this is vibes as praxis is our new show. So thank you, everyone. Uh, yeah, welcome, welcome to the show. The vibes are very good. Hello, everybody. It's it's the horror vanguard. Uh, I am your co-host, co-ghost, uh, John, joined as ever by my friends. Uh, and my comrade and co-ghost producer extraordinaire, Ash. How you doing? Vibing. <laughs> we, we're just straight up vibing today. The, the energy is good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, you, you might as well call me the abominable Dr. Vibes. <laughs> that, that was easily one of the worst puns that you've ever made. <laughs> we are... Um, we are talking about uh, a really great movie today, which is, which is, I think, why we're both in a very upbeat place. But first, um, a very important announcement about the show. Uh, we did the show as a labor of love, for, and we have for a very long time. But over the next few months, we are trying to make sure that we can get the Horror Vanguard Patreon to the point where it pays just a few of our costs. So... If you enjoy the show, if you would like access to bonus episodes, early access to everything that we release, and an invite to the HV Crypt, the spookiest Discord dedicated to horror movies and leftist theory, then please do go to uh, patreon.com slash horrorvanguard and chip in just a few dollars every month. And yes, one day it will be horrorvanguard.com slash Patreon. One day we'll be, we yeah. will become big enough <laughs> to attack and dethrone God. <laughs> um, that's what, that, isn't that what every podcast aspires to? <laughs> <laughs> one one um, would hope. But welcome, friends, to our, our vertical self-management system of a podcast um, as we talk about contemporary horror film that's been generating a lot of buzz it was a netflix distributed film we are talking about el hoya or in english the platform uh now obviously you probably have you probably have seen this maybe you've seen something about the film but for those of you who have not seen it as always ash is here to explain so ash what is the platform all about the platform offers countless ready and digestible interpretations for our lives. This film readily offers itself as a willing vehicle for discussions on capitalism, patriarchy, and anarchist critiques of hierarchy and power. The film also readily presents as a discussion of human nature. Are we vulgar beasts who need a leader to keep us tame, or do our circumstances make monsters out of natural saints? Like a well-crafted essay, this film is discursively rich and actively engaged. However, our minds are shattered, and we stare through the kaleidoscope of the real. This isn't just a movie, it's an extension of the self. As such, we share the common first action of recoiling from our exposed mental and physical states. The shadow haunts eternal, and we fear knowing what we truly are. In part, because even with a lifetime of introspection, we could never even scratch the surface of ourselves as subjects. To quote Marianne Williamson, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond all measure. Sink with us into the abyss. Bathe in the darkness and embrace the freedom granted by knowing your weaknesses, failures, 
and the forbidden arcana of your own soul as we discuss the platform. Ah, what other podcast brings you vibes, brings you orbs? (laughs) We've got orbs full of vibes today. (laughs) Um, As always, I think we should probably start with the formalist for talking about the film's uh, level of 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 our vertical uh, self management system of a podcast, um, and let's just kind of begin with something basic. What did you What did you think about um, about the the film? Um, well, from like a, a formalist perspective, I think that this this move is this move this movie is really interesting um, because it's effectively a movie shot in a single room. Um, and those are, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I think, always intriguing because that's such an interesting limitation, especially in, in the contemporary age. Um, and I think we'll, we'll go on to talk about stages conceptually in a bit. But so much about contemporary cinema is about rejecting the conceptual boundaries of the stage, which I think um, also to foreshadow the rest of our conversation is uh, uh, psychoanalytically damaging. You know, the, mm-hmm. the stage yeah. is eternal. You can't you can't have a movie without a stage. You know, by by the very nature of this beast, you know, like the thing, the thing is there. And I think a lot of contemporary cinema and green screen technology, it's about dissolving that. Um, but I, I really like that. I, I think it's it's interesting and it puts a lot of creative limitations on the work. What about you? Yeah, I, 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 I completely agree. I really love the fact that you said creative limitations because I think that underscores a lot about this film. Um it's it's incredibly uh, well performed for the most part. I think the dynamic between our central two slash three slash one characters is really is really interesting. <laughs> um, and I'm like you. I really like movies which are which are constrained in some way. This is kind of like um, the thing that the only thing that I could kind of compare this to is that is like what if. Um, what if Samuel Beckett decided to make a horror film about economics? I love it. <laughs> that's what, that's what, that's formally, formally, I think that's what this film is like. Yeah, form, formally it does have good vibes, I agree. Um, well, the vibes are, the vibes, the vibes are, the vibes are not good for our main character, but I get what you mean. <laughs> yes, in, in the pit, the vibes are, everybody has bad vibes in the pit. I also think it's incredibly well written. I think it's well shot. There, you can kind of tell that it originally started as a theater project, mm-hmm. um, and I don't, I don't mean that in a, a kind of derogatory way. I think, I think it's actually, um, it, it works within the the very narrow and contained frame, because that's the way that you make sure that the very high concept doesn't overwhelm the story that you're trying to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's good. I think it's a really good movie. I'm sorry. I'm laying, I'm laying my cards on the table very early on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah, I think I I was a lot more conflicted about this one, um, than, than you were going in. Uh, but, uh, that was, that was a limitation in me as a film critic that I have since, I have since shed like some abominable outer skin uh, and now I have uh, correct thought regarding the pit, and I have uh, spicy some some. I, I took a trip to the spicy take store and and got some new ideas. Um, <laughs> and once once I we'll get into like the the kind of like kind of like class conflict one hundred and one trap in this movie in, in just a second here. But I think like once once I kind of escaped the event horizon uh, and the limitations of that reading this movie really opens up to a lot of interesting new places well let's let's do what you did right let's let's kind of let's kind of go through that process so what was it what was it about this that was leaving you feeling initially that was leaving you feeling kind of a little bit conflicted and a little bit sort of like meh about it so uh, in the pit, and people people wind up in the pit for a whole host of reasons. Some people are here because the pit functions as a prison, and they're in here to serve a sentence for a crime. And other people are in the pit, like our protagonist is in the pit because he wants an academic degree of some kind. He wants um, his diploma, yeah. 
and some other people are in the pit just because, you know, uh, the, it's very vague as to why people wind up in this pit. Um, and the people at the top of the pit, uh, so every, every day a tray of food descends down the center of the pit. Um, and on that tray, at the top of the pit, it's, it's loaded with like, you know, uh, multi-Michelin star, uh, quadruple A rosette rated super ultra culinary experience food. Mm-hmm. Um, but then by the time it gets to the bottom of the pit, everything's been picked clean and there's nothing left which is a pretty direct metaphor for the striations of class, right? The people at the top of the class pyramid have, have access to, to all the goods that one could ever want in this life. And then as you, as you descend down the rungs of the class ladder, by the time you're at the bottom, people are literally starving to death. Yeah. Actually, not even by the time you get to the bottom, right? So there are, it's true. There are 333 levels. In in of that the platform will descend, um, and uh, uh, so it's like by the time you get to like level one hundred and fifty, less than halfway down, uh, cannibalism is the norm, mm-hmm. kind of horrific violence. People don't really survive. Um. Well, maybe maybe if we're going to talk about, there's a couple of things that I wanted to to sort of talk about based on what you said, which is. I, I get what you mean, because I think if you watch this, you can quite easily go, oh, well, this kind of fits with a a broader move that's been happening in contemporary horror cinema towards what, what I call like Marx-ish rather than mm-hmm. Marxist films. So it, it kind of talks about, you know, capitalism is bad or inequality is a thing. Um, and I, I and quite a lot of those films I really like, and I think they do it really, really well. Yeah. Um, but I do I agree with you that I think that that they're limited. So what do you think is kind of behind or underlying this shift towards the Marxish in filmmaking? Um, ge- gestures broadly, <laughs> uh, points that, wildly at everything. <laughs> yes, that, that's what I think is behind it. I think we're at a, a particular um, moment in in human civilization where confronting things from a Marx-ish perspective is a little inexorable, you know, like, like, like recently, like, you know, there's a whole wave of, you know, people posting handwritten notes outside of their Burger King that say something like, you know, we're, we don't get paid real money. We have no benefits. We all just quit, you know, like that is the world in which we live. uh, Right. And like, you know, COVID COVID has really brought all this to bear, you know, like the, Wealth inequality has never been greater. Rents are skyrocketing while wages haven't changed in decades. You know, like we are we are in a time where you really can't turn away from this kind of like surface level Marxist critique, right? Like this, these surface levels critique of class and economy and capitalism can't be escaped. They have to at least be kind of looked at. And I think that gets us a lot of a lot of these Marx-ish films that aren't explicitly communist or anarchist or anything like that but are nevertheless like grappling with the same problems just without like the full breadth of theory that's out there yeah i i guess i guess the thing that i'm sort of trying to sort of articulate is i think obviously i'm i'm completely I, i'm in complete agreement with me with you and <laughs> like unlike so, you i think I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm I'm in complete agreement with me. Is an ideal Freudian slip. <laughs> <laughs> Get, getting owned by my own linguistic errors is a very Freudian thing. Right. I'm in complete agreement with you, but I'm I'm also aware that like we exist at a time where films like Parasite, like this, come out, mm-hmm. but also yeah. in a situation in which Obama can say that one of his favorite films of the year was Parasite. And it's like that doesn't necessarily reflect upon a weakness of the film, but is, in my opinion, more broadly a, a weakness of kind of liberal hermeneutics of dealing with culture. Mm-hmm. But it does suggest that these films can be integrated into kind of easy normative modes of mainstream cultural consumption, which doesn't negate the critique that's in them. But it means that we actually have to have to be aware of the ways in which these Marx-ish horror films don't 
are not are not the end point of kind of uh cultural responses to capitalist antagonisms right oh i i completely agree i i think this is i i think it would do us no favor to kind of just say that like oh well you know parasite is inherently self-limiting text um and you know it's it's because at no point in the movie uh our, our characters stop and break the fourth wall and read capital volumes one through three in their entirety that that the movie is able to be reabsorbed into a kind of like neoliberal structure because i think that like even if that were the case even if it was so blatant and extreme like that you know, like it could still be just readily reabsorbed into neoliberalism and capitalism because that's just what neoliberalism and capitalism do. They just reabsorb every effort to defeat them. And I think yeah. part of part of the limitations of these films is the limitations of like a, a lot of popular criticism is is kind of firmly ensconced in capitalism, so it isn't ultra interested in in confronting these antagonisms. You know, so so that that helps the process. It helps this kind of capitalistic digestion of art. And I think in response, we have to do what you did, right? We 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 collectively have to do the thing where we we actually don't just settle for the most immediate reading of a of a piece of art, but actually try and wrestle with it and find in it new resources rather than ones which are mm -hmm. just kind of like there given. Oh, absolutely. Everything under the sun belongs to the oppressed and working peoples of this world, and that includes movies, the the good, the bad, and the Aronofsky included in this. And we can like <laughs> it is it is it is upon us to wrestle with these things, you know, and and to and to bring them back under under our wing, essentially. Yes, and I. But that being said. I think you you are you are quite right when you say that there is a sort of very immediate metaphor here. Um, and before we get into the, uh, you know, before we before we sort of tear open the packet of super spicy takes that we both bought <laughs> from from the takes store, maybe it would be a good idea just to spend a couple of minutes. You know, you, you, I remember you said to me before we uh, were recording that like this is basically like class one hundred and one. So maybe we should do that. Let's let's do the class 101 bit here. You know, how how would we how would you describe to someone who who is not really that interested in theory? What is what is what is what does it mean to say that we're talking about class conflicts? Uh yeah, so the spark notes of this is is that there there is a group of people uh who systemically Right, not even by their own choosing or volition, just just as part of the way our society is structured to operate, own everything. Right, they they own your house, they own part of your car, they they own the food in the grocery store, and there is another group of people, uh, the working class, who have to barter our time to regain access to those things that we made in the first place because it's working people who built and repair and maintain housing and transportation and food and medicine, right? Like that's, we created all of these things in the first place. Um, we've mm -hmm. just been kind of conned uh, by this much smaller group of people who uh, own it all somehow. Um, that's what I would give as kind of a, a 101 sparks notes for, for people who aren't particularly interested in listening to lengthy quotes from from dead german guys <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I, I i would agree that you know there is there are class is a social relation right mm -hmm. it is um it is not an individual thing um you know when garang wake, wakes up on one level the guys above him are not are not uh, jerks to him because they're just intrinsically horrible people. Yes, it's because they exist in a system which structures and determines behavior and social social relations between individuals. Um, but if it so, if you want to understand why class is a determining structure, um, then you have to think beyond. Oh, it's that it's the fact that that some individuals are, are rich and some are poor. Um, it it actually goes a lot deeper than that, and it's mm -hmm. it's about the the foundations of how we of of how society functions on a structural level. Yes, 
A- absolutely. It's not it's not about the current host of like the five richest men alive or whatever. Like they they could be any other five men alive and the system would still endure, right? It's because the the, the system here, the the set of social relations, the way society has been constructed, these social technologies Mm-hmm. That is that that is the actual mechanical body of class yeah. distinction and class antagonism. Yeah. Um it it like you know, it's not that it's not that uh people uh like individually I have no strong feelings towards people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. On a class level, I find the the, the wealth that they've accumulated, the power that they're able to exert and the ways in which they inflict misery upon untold peoples across the globe to be kind of morally repugnant. So mm-hmm. it's, oh, yeah. it's you know, it's, if you turn it into individualism, you basically end up, you know, being mad at like individual rich people, you know, those two people at the top of the tower on, on floor number one, when instead the, the issue is the whole environment of the tower itself, right? Yeah, and I think Elon Musk is an interesting case study for this because at his core, he is like a deeply unfunny Z-tier Reddit memester yeah. <laughs> who is maybe 12 years behind the greater meme landscape. Yeah. You know, he, he it's 2021 and he's like an epic bacon guy. Yeah, absolutely. And like, Which is what, one of yeah. the reasons why... <laughs> Why I principally just find him embarrassing. <laughs> this, this, these are these are the people who have their hands on the levers of power, whom start are jettisoning our planet into environmental apocalypse. It's like the I just I just saw the SNL Wario thing today, um, and Ooh, that mind... that sounds like something that is just designed to inflict massive psychic damage. Uh, it was. <laughs> I'm still reeling. It's like, um, you know, yeah. we're going to watch we're going to watch the last breathable bits of the atmosphere be siphoned away and it would be like, "Uh-oh, Reddit moment." Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tr- is it like post a troll face meme as he like flies away to Mars or something. Exactly. Um okay, so how do we how do we how do we sort of deepen the metaphor? How do we how do we read this text in a way that gives rise to um maybe more the the truth that there is more going on in this film than just a very a kind of um a, a, an immediate and obvious critique of trickle down economics well i think a good first place to start for this would be inside of neoliberalism itself indeed <laughs> <laughs> i mean if the if the vertical self-management center is kind of the in a way this is like the apotheosis of kind of neoliberal mindset oh 100 percent, yeah yes i think that that is a great place to start so where, where, where would you want to start with that well what i wanted what i wanted to start with would be to talk about the idea of cruel optimism mm-hmm. um so our our main character Goreng is um is in the hole um goes into the vertical self-management system because he wants his diploma um and lauren Ballant has written about this this concept of cruel optimism being the principal affect that exists under contemporary capitalism where the thing that you are told to want is actually the thing that's going to impede your own happiness so he wants his diploma he's 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 been told that he wants his diploma so he's like, well, I'm going to, to do everything that I'm told in order to get the thing that I'm told that I want. And that's the thing that's going to make me happy. And um, actually, it's the pursuit of that which is causing him the great pain and suffering that he goes through. The kind of, um, you know, where he's forced to confront things about himself and to do things that he would never have thought that he would want to do. So I think cruel optimism is uh, like Balan said it's the it's the principal mode of feeling mm-hmm. that neoliberalism op- operates on and i think that's really true um what about you so a lot about a lot about the the vertical self management center is really intriguing from the perspective of like because i know i know we're we're walking we're walking face first into the wheat thresher that is uh the left just calls everything they don't like neoliberalism 
Oh yes. Oh um, yes. But I am. I'm putting on. I'm putting on my my uh, you know snorkel. I've got my sandals on. I've got uh, a vintage '80s uh, swimsuit. I am ready to just dive into the Sweet Thresher uh, with no fear and a full embrace. So what I find to be really interesting here is there's a character whose name is Imoguri. Um, and what we, what we find out is that, uh, she was actually the woman who interviewed, um, Goring for his time in the pit. So she, Mm -hmm. she is a a full believer in the vertical self-management center and its mission. She is 100% signed on and she has now volunteered herself because she's dying of an illness to, to be in the pit right to kind of to kind of spend her her final moments helping the pit project if you will mm-hmm. and through throughout our meeting with her character i think it's some of the most telling stuff right um because she's she's attempting to organize the pit sort of um mm-hmm. when i say organize here i don't mean in a sense that perhaps some of our audience will be familiar with the sense of like organizing your workplace or organizing a mutual aid effort um, I mean, in this like like a a bit more of a managerial neoliberal approach to organization, very hierarchical. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Because what what we see is uh, when we meet her, they're in a higher level of the pit, which means that uh, edible food makes its way down to them, even if it's a little beaten. Um, and what she does is she plates food for the people on the level below her, and as the as the platform with of food descends. She she says, "Hey, only only eat what I have plated for you, and then plate meals for the people on the way down." It's this amazingly neoliberal approach to this, right? Because it's it's got this micromanagement management bureaucratic energy to it, mm-hmm. where the, these yeah. people can't self determine their lives. They're not actually that's that's not actually working for a way to end the pit. That's working for a way to make the pit look a little bit more humane. Uh, because because under Joe Biden's pit, it's it's not the pit; it's the vertical self management center, and people plate food for the people below them because it's just so kind. This isn't Trump's death pit. This this is a much cleaner, nicer place <laughs> yeah. to be. And like, while technically that might be true, uh, technically doesn't cut it when we're dealing with things as horrific as the pit. And I think this brings up a really important debate that this film stages, which is. Because the phrase that she says is, she refers a lot to this idea of spontaneous solidarity. You know, pe- you know, if you just start treating people just a little bit, a little bit better, a little bit nicer, then there'll be this kind of spontaneous solidarity will emerge. But spontaneous solidarity doesn't just happen, right? Mm-hmm. People don't, you know, there has to be a way for people to uh, learn about one another and to... Uh, materially practice solidarity that is organized and structured. And it isn't until uh, Goren gets involved and and their initial attempts at organizing uh, are seasoned, shall we say, with some threats. He very bluntly tells them that if they don't do as they're told, he's going to shit in the food. <laughs> which, <laughs> which is... Um, uh, but but it works, right? So there is a kind of organizing force that begins to emerge, which will come up later on in the film in a much more kind of structured and and um, well defined way. So I think that 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 staging of that that conflict between this idea of like, oh well, if we're just nice to the one person, you know, it's a societal problem. It requires organizational strategy to engage with. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a really compelling critique that this movie puts forward. Right, because the uh, one of the key and defining elements of neoliberalism is that it seeks to make everything individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- this is this is Margaret Thatcher's just damnably iconic quote. You know, there is no society. Yeah, because right, the whole the whole the whole point is, well, it's your responsibility. You chose to come into the system, or you were placed in this system. So now that you're here, it's your responsibility to make the best of it. Right? Yes. To, Lift to, yourself up by your bootstraps, grin and bear it. You know, the, this weight is on you and you alone. Like that is the and neoliberal if, and if you, set. And if you really have to, because you have to survive, because it's all about the individual, if you really have to, uh, murder and eat your cellmate because nobody, because the government's not going to do it for you. <laughs> and well, we, we, we even see this with um, Goring's initial roommate, if you will, in the pit is a man named Trumagasi. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, he is constantly saying like, hey, we're, we're on a lower level today, but tomorrow we'll wake up on an upper level. And the month after that, we'll wake up on an even lower level. You know, so like we're here. We need to take what's ours. It's it's this very kind of like, you know, th- th- Reaganite Thatchery attitude about your position in society, right? Like the, the the idea that the people below you would would strip you bare for parts and move on if they had the opportunity. Um, I don't know why this popped into my mind, but like one of the most hack. Uh, uh anti-vegan arguments that people always use is like oh well like if a cow had an opportunity it would kill and eat you in a heartbeat and it's just like this this is reflective of a broader set of neoliberal uh uh, ideologies that have inflicted our brains yeah i mean what's the thing that uh trimagasu is always saying obviously it's obvious it's obvious, you know, those people above you, they treat you like that because they're above you. It's obvious. Mm-hmm. And when we're on a higher level, we're going to be, we'll do exactly the same thing. Um, and it, it, his constant repetition of the word obvious is a, a sort of semantic shorthand for that Thatcherite injunction that there is no alternative, right? It's obvious. It's naturalized. This is not a constructed system. These are just material laws of the universe operating. You know, it's just human nature is what people love to say. Yes, yes, and let's let's talk about human nature, shall we? Ooh, yes, let's do it. Um, so I have a quote I would like to read that will inform and shape our coming discussion on human nature. <clears throat> uh, this is for this is from the Guardian's review of this movie, written by Sam Jones. They write. The perfect parable for life in a time of coronavirus and a visceral investigation of how a crisis can expose not only the stratification of human society, but also the immutable strands of selfishness coded into our DNA. Hmm. I think hmm. Uh, I think there's a, there's a few a couple few things maybe we should pick apart about how Jones closes that statement. Um. Uh, well, like, firstly, d- do you agree? We both we both watched the movie. I'm going to give that a big no ski. I don't agree with Sam Jones. <laughs> um, I I think to to me, what this film is really good at is demonstrating the plasticity of human nature on a on a a practical level on the way that people can and will behave in different ways based um, on on different social fields. So, uh, Goreng, in the first few days that he's uh, there, doesn't eat anything. Mm-hmm. He, finds the whole thing, he finds the whole thing disgusting. He doesn't want to be involved. Very early on in the film, there's a montage which just shows him kind of normalizing this. And he does exactly the same thing that Trimagasi does. You know, he gets his cushion, kneels on it when the f- food comes down, tries to eat as much as he can. So it's like, this is not a film that's making comments about the intrinsic nature of, of human beings. It's making comments about the ways in which social social experience, social environment determines behaviors. Yes, 100%. Any, anytime you ever hear someone start talking about the, the immutability of human nature or, or something inherent to our character as a species know that that is coming either consciously or unconsciously from an ideological standpoint that Mm -hmm. that when someone starts talking about human nature what they're about to say is reflective of whatever ideologies underpin their worldview right because because absolutely i would say what you just said humans are are biased in certain directions maybe but essentially uh tabula rasa of character you know, we we go into the world and then society deeply informs how we act and what we do and what decisions we think are right and wrong. Yeah. So who, who we are, who we are is in many ways determined by our social existence. Um, and, you know, there are plenty of there are plenty of, um, you know, post Frankfurt School Marxists who have written about the fact that really um, genu- like human nature it's it's kind of like squashed under under capitalism. Yes, you know, Mark Fisher describes neoliberalism as a, a machine for destroying class consciousness. 
You know, it's a social field that turns us all into competitors against one another and then normalizes that to the level of, of nature mm-hmm. when, in fact, when in fact this is a kind of frame by which we have been taught and, and ideologically uh, inculcated to think, reason and behave. So this is not a film that says anything about what's encoded in our DNA. This is just nonsense. It's 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 very. I would go as far as to say masturbatory, right? Like this is just a line designed to defend one's worldview and to try and prop this movie up as that. But like li- literally, the entire first act of this movie is is a man having his like a uh, uh, essential DNA human nature completely corrupted by his social field. Yeah, you know, Goring yeah. enters this as a, a relatively all right guy. Um, and you know, like through, through the course of this is transformed into like a violent authoritarian before he, um, perhaps descends into hell as Christ, but we'll get to the end of this in a second. (laughs) Yeah. But we'll get to the end. We'll get to the end. Um, we'll get there. Yeah. And so this, like, I, I find it really telling that a film review for the guardian Uh, is Mm -hmm. talking about what. What is coded into our DNA and how this film shows it to us? Yeah, um, a Margaret like, Thatcher Weekly uh, said that this movie was all about how the individual is the core of society. Yeah, I'm like, mm, did we watch the same movie? Uh, we, we, we did. It's just uh, one, one of us has a, is predisposed to a set of ideologies that... Uh, gives primary focus to individual actions and individual agency because that allows it to hide systemic and social corruption. Basically, basically what, what I feel our show functions as, Ash, is, you know, you know that very famous scene in They Live uh, where he's fighting his best friend and he's trying to get him to put on the sunglasses? <laughs> G- Zizek's, Zizek's whole bit about that scene is you know he's like put on put on the sunglasses or start eating that trash can you know it's famous i am already eating from the trash can all the time the name of that trash can is ideology but like zizek's point is that you know uh, realization doesn't just kind of happen sometimes sometimes you know you have to be forced into freedom because of because that's the way that ideology works and i feel that like that's me and you but with every other mainstream film critic <laughs> it's like no put on the sunglasses <laughs> put put on the sunglasses sam i and, i'm i'm going to put the guardian in a headlock and i am going to force them to put the sunglasses on yes <laughs> and start realizing the nature of ideal uh, ideology <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think that so, I think that's the yeah. I think this is all a, a very true and a very important thing to keep in mind while watching this film and reading criticism more broadly. So should we should we should we talk about the ending because it starts to get? Actually, there are two things that I wanted to talk about. We want to talk about the ending, obviously, but I think we should talk, also talk about. Um, uh, we should talk about the relationship, uh, the the character of Baharat and and. Uh, Goreng and Baharat's uh, kind of struggle to organize mm-hmm. um, and and their descent to the very base of the tower. Um, what what do you think about that? Because they 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 try. Baharat is introduced to someone who's trying to get to the top to escape, and Goreng says, "Actually, what we're going to do is we're gonna we're gonna ride the platform down, and we're gonna give out food once we get past level fifty. If anyone tries to stop us." On those first fifty floors, we're going to beat them, uh, we're, and we're going to we're going to be violent, and we're going to make sure that they don't. Um, wh- what did you think about that whole arc? And because I think it's particularly important to think about this in the context of any kind of political strategy and the role and function of violence, because it's something they're very quick and very easy and very willing to call upon. Um, yeah, what did you think? Um, I have a lot of thoughts about this because I think that this is one of the more interesting aspects of the movie. Um, so initially when they try their food redistribution plan, the, the way they go about it is by beating everybody with pipes who tries to eat. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what that fails to recognize is that the majority of the ways the system sustains itself is through violence. 
you know, and in in their doing that, um, all all they're doing, I I think, is elevating, trying to elevate themselves up into some kind of heroic status. But what that winds up doing is recapitulating two core societal types of violence, right? Like this is this is the violence of the patriarchy. This is the violence of the carceral state, right? They become prison guards in the pit, trying to equally distribute the food, right? Like they're not. It's not a liberatory effort at that point in the movie. It's an effort to ensure the pit is well managed. You know, so yeah, manage manage correctly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so in spite of their lofty ideals they wind up becoming nothing more than prison guards they become cops for a little bit there and i think that that is really important to highlight right like it's not so um so at at a certain point in the pit um uh gorang and barat meet someone who we're led to believe is like a mentor or father figure to barat um named brambang and he he kind of lets them know that they've been fucking it up the whole time with their like beat everybody with pipes who tries to eat plan. <laughs> who would have thought? <laughs> yeah, who, who, who would who would have thought that this kind of like uh, completely bald authoritarian carceral approach to redistributing food was not the correct approach? <laughs> but he he, he basically mm-hmm. sets them straight and he lets them know that like no like you have to like you have to win these people over. You know, you have to get them to realize that what you're doing is for some kind of communal cause. You have to address them as as people, right? And and then that's what they start doing. They start like connecting, you know, and like like actually addressing the needs of the people around them instead of trying to like force people to obey what they think their needs should be. And that I think is is a is a fundamental shift. I think I I think that's a really really important moment because you know the guy says, you know, if you are you're in an environment which conditions people to behave in a certain way, you're not going to break them out of that way of behaving by just doing the same thing but from different motivations. Mm-hmm. So you actually have to you have to appeal to these people with reason. You have to remind them of their capacity for thinking of something other than themselves. Um. And then they go, well, what if it doesn't work? And then he's like, well, then you can beat them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I, in all seriousness, I think it's like you have a diversity of tactics. You have a direct appeal um, that it requires a kind of self-sacrifice that, that expects the very best of the people that they encounter. They don't, you know, initially they're expecting the very worst. They're like, they're going to try and steal the food, so it'll have to be violent. But it's like if you appeal to the to, to reason, you know, you you're not appealing to the very lowest aspects of the self. You're appealing to the very idealized image of what people can be, and asking them to sort of join in. And that is not a bad organizing strategy, right? It's creating a vision of a possible future and drawing somebody into it rather than creating a punishment now in the present. Yeah, no, I I I completely agree. You know, and it actually starts to address a systemic problem with the pit. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like the pit in and of itself is a systemic problem, <laughs> mm-hmm. but like, like it's actually fundamentally beginning to address people's needs instead of just using the tools and technologies of the pit to restructure it. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. Should we talk about the ending then? Should we talk about, because I, I think the ending is super interesting and and initially I wasn't, I wasn't wild about it, but the more I think about it, the more. I, I think there's something super fascinating happening. So so I, I really want to know what your what your kind of take is on it. So this is my this is this is my spicy Amitabal uh, take here. Uh, this is this is the uh, completely reforged thing on the movie that kind of got me to come around uh, in some unique and exciting ways for this movie. So let's let's if you will do a journey through the history of psychoanalysis. Um, Goring before entering the pit is a smoker you know he, he is seen smoking in the interview for a pit he's smoking through all of those scenes right it's, it's, it's central to how we see Goring right and the pit administrator um, Imaguri uh, winds up letting him know like, uh, like one of the things you can't do in the pit is smoke you're going to have to stop smoking to enter the pit Smoking, uh, uh, for everybody uh, uh, out there, is like the classic example of a Freudian oral fixation, right? The first stage in development from Freudian psychoanalysis is the oral stage, right? 
people who have hangups from their oral stage, you know, uh, smoke is like the classic adult manifestation of it because you're constantly fixated with with putting something in your mouth and controlling it and having a new thing in there and smoking lets you do that all the time. Chewing on pencils is a lesser common one. Um, so so he has to kind of like, but he doesn't resolve any kind of oral fixation. There's no actual like resolution of what would have caused that from a Freudian perspective. He just drops it. And then when he enters the pit, who does he meet if not his mirrored other, right? He, he's mm. resistant to seeing himself as part of the pit, right? Like he's, he's going through the Lacanian mirror stage on his initial entry into the pit. We shift from Freudian psychoanalysis outside of the pit to Lacanian analysis while he's a prisoner of the pit. And then I think there's a third important change, and it happens in the third act of our movie, where he hops on the platform and begins his descent. And as he descends, things get darker, right? And, and as they get darker, he's realizing further and further and further down the things he has tried to exclude from his knowledge of his own self in terms of his relationship inside of the pit, right? And when we get to this final level, a level, by the way, that is deeper and darker than anyone knew existed right? He, he is fully bathed in his own shadow, right? We enter this Jungian space and in the very bottom of the pit, he's doing shadow work and confronting the things about himself that he has tried to hide from his own conscious mind. Mm. And this is kind of the thing that got me thinking about this movie in a bunch of really new and weird ways that got me to really, really like it is is in a way the movie is with us passing through uh three of the most prominent thinkers of psychoanalytic thought mm -hmm. yeah um i i really like that reading i really like that reading and it's uh it so they they go down and they they decide that they're going to send a message back up with the platform and the message is going to be um a perfect dish that is not spoiled, it's not eaten, it's not touched in any way. And they choose a, a panna cotta. Um, uh, but when they get to the very bottom of the pit, they discover that somehow there's a child has survived down there. So instead of this kind of meaningless symbol, their symbol is the kind of uh, the child being, you know, drawn back up into the light to show what's really happened to the people in the pit, which you can read absolutely in the sort of psychoanalytic and Jungian way that you put forward, which I think is really fascinating. But for me, I was sort of like, oh, this explains all of the references to God mm -hmm. in this film. Yeah. Uh, my favorite one is Tremagasi, just before they get moved, asks Garang, do you believe in God? Uh, and he says, yes. And he says, well, pray. Pray for us. Pray that you survive, because I don't think you will. Um, and it, it, he's he's not only having a kind of psychoanalytic experience internally he's having an external one as well because it changes how he relates right so he literally you know there are two people on every level there are 333 levels numerologically he ends up in in uh the level 666 the level of hell uh and there is a kind of resurrection as he as he chooses to stay in hell and sends back up uh the 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 child that's been you know sort of saved by his sacrifice so I think both of those ways of reading it really work together. And I think it completely unlocks the ending to be something really interesting and kind of novel when you compare it to what the rest of the film has done. I I agree. I, I think the ending of this movie is really, really, really interesting because it also like it, it's the it's the part that tries to reject neoliberalism the hardest even if that's mm. not consciously what the movie is doing, right? Because Goring rejects the opportunity to be a great hero. You know, if he if he rides to the top of the pit with this child, he he mm. is now the man who exposed to the pit. He's now the man who brought the system to its knees. He's now this great action hero who who fought and ventured into hell and rescued an innocent. But but uh um his his mirror double right so he starts he starts seeing the ghost of imagiri um after he kills him and it's it's a re this really haunting thing but he lets him know that like you know like the, the message is important not the messenger and so so goring is able to set aside his ego he's able to set aside his individuality and just kind of like let the message continue without him and he stays down mm. there in in the the base layer of the pit 
Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of sad end in a way, but it's also a very fitting end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I... I know you. I know you have one final question that you wanted to to bring up. One yes, final I, point. I, I have a very important question. Um, are academics working class? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. That's that's super tough. That's that's a really really interesting question. Let me think about that. Hmm. Oh, oh, hang oh, on. My 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 team of of servants have brought me my my late afternoon fancy snack. Uh, here, here in the gilded tower of academia, um, I just, I just have to shoo away my foot rub urchins, and then we can continue this episode. <laughs> uh, my answer would be um, yes, uh, and I'm y- sort of baffled, yes. baffled that people would ask that question. Um, a important distinction I would make: yes, working class academics are definitely a thing. Um, I consider myself one of them. Um, secondly. The university is not a working class institution. It is a, a neoliberal corporate environment. And so to be a working class academic is to be kind of almost intrinsically in conflict with the institution that you work for and within. Yes, 100%. And, and I would add to that that there are the vast majority of people who would fit the bill for a quote unquote academic are working class. These are people adjuncting at several jobs. These are people living through housing precarity. These are people who do not make enough money. Like, like ima- imagine if you were a bricklayer and your boss came up to you and was like, hey, I need you to work 30 extra hours a week that you won't get paid for, but I'll write you a note that says you're really cool. Like that, that is effectively yeah. a lot of what the ac- space is for academic labor. And, and mm-hmm. what I would say to that is like being an academic is also kind of like being a chef. Right. Mm. There are the vast majority of people who fit the bill for a chef just kind of toil away or a cook rather. Mm -hmm. I'll say a cook. Right. The vast majority of cooks just just are working class, scraping by, doing what they can. And then and then you 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 have you have your Gordon Ramsay's of the world. Right. You you have the people who succeed succeed beyond the wildest expectations of their field and become multimillionaires with TV shows. And the mm-hmm. same is true for the academic environment, but that doesn't make academics not working class, that a few of them are are able to, or not, I shouldn't say able to, that the system has space for a few of them to to live opulent lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think this this idea is, is very strange. So it's like, I, I think it's really important to reiterate that, right? The majority of academics are not permanently employed. No. Uh, the majority of academics, particularly in the in the country that I live in, are not permanently employed, um, are not uh, paid well, if at all, um, and are frequently the, the exploited and 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 taken advantage of, seen as a source of free and highly flexible labor that these multi, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars institutions can basically do what they want with. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, and I bring this up because Goring enters the pit to get a degree. He wants a diploma. Yes, absolutely. And we never, it is never specified. We, we can kind of suss out that it's a, maybe a humanities degree, maybe literature because he brings a book with him, but he never, he never flatly spells out what this degree is, nor why he wants it. You know, it's not a specific degree in a specific field for a specific outcome, unless I totally missed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people keep saying to him, you know, why would you bring a book? You know, what kind of person brings a book to this place? And it's like, it's a really good object lesson in, in the kind of hostility of the neoliberal un- university to the idea mm-hmm. of, of, of knowledge. You know, you're not, if you're, if you're an academic, you're, you're not valuable because of your learning or because of what you can teach others. You're valuable if you can generate revenue. Yes. So why would you bring a book? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, is, it is not about some kind of like grand Aristotelian pursuit of knowledge. You know, it, it's about adding value back into the machine. And it's very much an environment where your status as a working class person, you're right, is absolutely in constant conflict with the system. Because if you rock the boat and you start asking for things, you are going to be the first person who gets the axe. Um, the alternative title of this episode should be um, answering the should I go to grad school question. <laughs> 
Oh yes, that that question. B B I I mean like I know I think we we have very similar but different answers in mind would be uh think about it very carefully and be prepared to fight inside of the pit for whatever scraps of food come your way. Actually, I'm going to yeah, retra- yeah. I'm going to retract that. It's not it's not to fight for whatever scraps of food your way. Be prepared to to enter an incredibly challenging environment that requires new and innovative labor organizing techniques. Yes, there we go. There we go. It is it is not a fight. It is a it, be be prepared. Um, this is good preparation, you know. This the, watching this movie. Um, any any final thoughts as we as we wrap up? Yeah. So the the one thing I want to talk about is the character Maharu. Yes. So Maharu is kind of an oddball in, in the pit in that uh, once once a month she descends the platform down mm. in search for her child because it's her child that Goring winds up finding in the yes. end, right? Yeah, yeah. And and according according to um, Imaguri, the pit uh, manager, the vertical self whatever facility manager, there are no children in the pit. Right, and yet we have Maharu who who will all will ride that platform down and search for her missing child, you know, and like Maharu has become like a vehicle for pain in this movie. Like Maharu suffers, like no one else in the pit suffers in this quest to be reunited with her child, and it's it's interesting to me that she's kind of the only person in the pit who has like a non self centered noble pursuit for being in the pit. You know, Goring Goring is there for some self self interested goal. He wants a degree. Uh, you know, we find out that other people are in the pit because it's it's a sentence for some kind of you know, uh, crime they've committed or something like that. But she's in the pit to be reunited with her child, and I find it really interesting, especially her her position in the greater context of if we're going to look at the pit as as capital P power and hierarchy and oppression. Because this is, this is like an amazingly hierarchical <laughs> institution, the pit. It's interesting to me that Maharu winds up being the one character who exists in defiance of what the pit is attempting. Right? In, exists in defiance of a lot of this individualism. You know, is is someone who's expressly from the start of this out for somebody else and not out for themselves. But it's the, it, and and this this raises the um, the important question of like. How much can we trust that? Because Imaguri says that, you know, she came into the pit because she wanted to be famous. Mm, yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and and it's like, do we do we know that? Do we know that to be true? We don't. It's quite possible that this character is just lying to us. Um, and I I think that's really that's really really uh important that there is someone there who has kind of like self sacrificing reasons right this idea that she's there simply to find something other than herself right so, fi- so find and gain something other than something self-involved in- and self-interested i think yeah you're right she, she she's the kind of unique character in the whole thing yeah yeah i i 100 think so and it's it's through her actions that goring first kind of like awakens from his stupor you know like mm-hmm. like like it's her presence that kind of is is the is the you know pry bar that knocks him out of this kind of de- depressive complacent loop that he enters into yeah absolutely um and i think the, the that that's a really important point to end on because it suggests that even the very smallest action in the most hostile environment if it's done you know if it's done by a person who is trying trying to connect trying to do something outside of themselves it can have huge and seismic impacts. So we should never kind of underestimate the ability and agency of a single person to begin changing an entire political situation. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I think that about wraps up our discussion on the platform. Uh, it's really good. It's really good. You can catch it on Netflix. It's one of those uh, films, I think, which rewards just going back into it and trying to find something deeper than just the surface um, entertainment, the surface metaphor that the text offers, right? Yeah, much, much like the pit itself, you have to you have to be willing to ride down into the pit in order to like really dig something out of this one. Descend into the discourse. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, everyone. And as always, 
stay spooky. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. Ha 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 